welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we just thank you so much for your holy and wonderful and savory and beautiful word. Lord, we're excited to dig in. We're excited to enjoy what's here, both the hard edges and the rough parts and the, and the encouraging and, and the uh, kind of parts that draw us in, Lord. And we just pray as we gather as your children here this morning, we pray, Lord, that your protection would be around this place, Lord. We pray that your angels would encamp around it, that it would be a place of refuge, that you would allow us to, to focus and be fed by you. Lord, we pray that if through a whole week we, we tend to get beat up and, and, and oppressed and, and difficult things happen, Lord, but this is a place for us to hear from you, and so we pray that you'd make it that refuge for us. We pray that you would encourage, transform, pray that you'd save, give new life to those who don't know you yet. We pray that you do all this for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. So <clears throat> this is just a super beautiful passage, and we've taken a couple of weeks here to uh, look at what God's designed us to be as a local church, and this morning we're here in Isaiah 58 to examine our calling as a church to give justice and mercy to the poor and powerless. And we're in this for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons David mentioned, which is it's uh, the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, is, is this weekend, and so churches often set this aside for that purpose, and that's a justice and mercy issue for the poor and powerless. Um, and also, it's Martin Luther King weekend, uh, so it fits that really well. And it's one of our core values. I mean, this isn't something we invented yesterday. This is something that we've talked about from the very beginning. We've, our five values that David talked about last week are that we're gospel-centered, um, that we're a family, that we have a mission, that we're spirit-empowered, and then we're called to compassion. And this call to compassion one is easy to forget, okay? Very easy to forget, even though it's through the entire scripture. I mean, from beginning to end, there's tons of talk about the poor and the powerless and our, our um, responsibility to them, but it's super easy to forget. It's super easy for people like us to forget, very theological people. It's very easy for us to forget this. These people forgot it, okay? These are God's people, 700 B.C., um, and... Uh, God sends Isaiah to confront them because they had forgotten a very core purpose of them being a people. And he calls them out, verse 1, he says, Cry aloud, don't hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sin. And this was surprising to them. They thought they were doing everything right. You can see that in verse 2. It says, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments and they delight to draw near. So they've got kind of the elements. If you were with them, you'd think, like, these people, they love the Lord, right? They, you know, they seek him daily in some way. They kind of delight in some sort of presence. Maybe when they had worship services and they were together, they really had good emotional feels about it, you know. Um, they, they did some pretty intense things. They fasted. Is fasting easy? You guys fast? I fast. Fasting's not easy. They did fast, though. They fast. Um, they, they were Sabbath-keeping people. Um, God says, as if they were a nation that did righteousness, which is kind of like digging it somehow they weren't, but they thought they were. They thought they were so much that they complained. They complained to God. They're like, we're doing all the right things. Why aren't you kind of coming through for us? Like, that's how much they thought they were doing the right thing. Look at verse 3. They said, we fasted and you don't see it. We've humbled ourselves and you take no notice of it. They're like, we're fasting, for goodness sakes. We're, we're, we're keeping the Sabbath. And, and what do we get for it? We don't get anything. I'm doing all the right things. I'm checking all the right boxes. Have you guys ever had that attitude towards God? 
You feel like, hey, I've been faithful. I've been holding my end of the deal, Lord. But you? I know my, my, my Christian life is dry. It's, it's powerless. It's something, you know, why is, it, why is God so far away? We kind of put it on him, right? Spoiler alert, but every time you do that, you are 100% wrong. Okay, like every single time. So if you can be like, you know, I kind of feel like this is God not holding up his end of the deal. Maybe I'm wrong. It's like, no, you are wrong, like 100% of the time. So just like make, make a mental note of that because that's important. And so Yahweh tells them what they're doing wrong. Look at the middle of verse 3. He says, behold, in the day of your fast, like I see you fasting. I did see it. You seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. Is, is such the fast that I have chose, a day for a person to humble himself and to bow down like a reed and spread sackcloth and put ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and acceptable day of the Lord? And so what God's doing here is he's highlighting a very unusual quality of the God of the Bible. It's a very unusual quality of the God of the Bible, which you might not see as unusual, but it certainly was in that day, and that is that the God of the Bible identifies with the poor and powerless. And you might go like, well, of course he does. Of course, any God that anyone believes in is, is about the poor. But that wasn't the case in ancient times. The gods in ancient times did not identify with the poor and powerless. The gods in ancient times identified with the powerful and the rich. Think of the Egyptian religion, okay? Who's God identifying with? The top. And that was common throughout ancient times, is that the, religious, the religion, the God of the religions of the ancient times, identified with the powerful and the rich, they were there to kind of affirm those people, right? But the God of the Bible is different. He identifies with the poor and powerless over and over again. And that would have been very, very strange to ancient years. Very strange that God identifies with the bottom of society, but he does. Take a look at the Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 31. Check this out. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Interesting. God takes it personally. You insult the poor. God takes it personally. He identifies with the poor and powerless. Or uh, Proverbs uh, 17.5, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. And God's like, no, 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 I took that personally. Or um, Proverbs 19.17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. He takes that personally, positive things too. He lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deeds. And so all throughout the Old Testament, you see this picture of God identifies with the poor and powerless. You think of like, where did he find his people? He finds them in slavery, right? Like he identifies with the poor and powerless. And then when Jesus comes, he continues this. And listen to Matthew 25. It's the exact same voice that you heard in Proverbs coming out of the mouth of Jesus. Listen to this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then listen to this. This is him identifying with the poor, right? When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came to me. And then the righteous will say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? And when did we see you thirsty and give you a drink? And, and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And listen to what Jesus' response will be on that final day at the judgment. Truly I say, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Takes it personally, right? Same voice as the Proverbs. 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you curse, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick, and in prison, you didn't visit me. And they, they will also say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And he will say, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it for the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, we tend to ignore passages like this and kind of not spend a lot of time in passages like this for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is, is that we look at it and we go, it almost seems like Jesus is saying that people are saved or damned based on how well they take care of the poor or powerless. And so we don't know, kind of know what to do with that. And so we try and avoid passages that make us uncomfortable. Um, let me just give you a tip. Any passage you're reading as you're reading along and it makes you uncomfortable, that's the exact passage you need to spend more time in. Amen. Okay? Like, that's the way to know. You're like, what should I do a devotion on? The one that makes you the most uncomfortable. It turns out that that passage is the one you need the most. And so there's a little part of us that goes, no, 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 not there. And it's like, that's the one. So highlight that one, maybe with a special color that means uncomfortable, and, uh, and go back to it. But this passage shows us two really important themes in Scripture. One of them is that God identifies with the poor and powerless, right? Jesus says, as you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. He takes it personally, those good deeds toward him. You guys know the concept of like a secret shopper? You guys are in retail? Sometimes corporate will send somebody to shop at the store, a particular franchise, to check it out, see what's going on, right? And to report back. Guys, he's saying in this passage that Jesus does something like that. He comes to us every day disguised as the poor and powerless. He clothes himself in a disguise, basically, as the poor and powerless. He says, as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. God cares for the poor and the powerless. And the other thing this passage says is that all those who really know him will also care for the poor and powerless. And see, these people weren't saved because of how well they cared for the poor. Um, These people were uh, cared for the poor and powerless because they were saved. Okay? This was a mark of them already being saved. Now, I'll put it a different way. They loved what God loves, the poor and powerless. They loved what God loves because God himself was living in them. Okay? That's the way to look at this. This is outward evidence of what's internally in them. And that's what we're seeing here in Isaiah 58. Is he's saying to truly know me is to pour yourself out for the poor and for the powerless. And this is a theme throughout Scripture. And I had a whole section on this. I had to cut it. This would take forever. But you could just go through. You could go through the law. Uh, the Old Testament law and how it cared for the poor and the powerless. You could look through the, uh, the, the prophets like crazy. You look through the wisdom literature, through Job and through Proverbs and Psalms and see it all throughout. You see it all throughout the New Testament. You see it in James with the debate over faith and works. What's the work? The work is care for the poor. Um, you can see it throughout Acts. You see that in Acts, there's developed two different offices in the New Testament church. They're the same two offices we have today, the elder and deacon. And, and one of those is for caring for the needs of the poor and powerless, the deacons. That's what they do. So if you're devoting like half your staff to that, like that's, that says uh, that there's a strong, strong priority it's throughout Scripture. And even though it's throughout the Bible, guys, we can still miss it. We can still miss it. We could have good theology. We could have generally ethical lives. We could be seeking God in worship like they were and ultimately have a completely self-absorbed religion. It's totally possible, guys. It was possible for them. Because, guys, self-denial, which is what fasting is about, self-denial doesn't mean we aren't self-absorbed. You can be doing self-denial like crazy and be self-absorbed. That's what these people were doing. Because self-denial, which is important, 
is for the purpose of love. Self-denial just means you're, there's something that you're um, you know, not doing, not partaking in, not spending this money, not eating this food, whatever. That's self-denial. But it's meant for the purpose of love, which is to pour yourself out to others. He's saying, I see you depriving yourself, but I do not see the love. It's focusing on the putting off of sin without the putting on of love. That's what's going on here. We could miss this, guys, and so we need to be reminded regularly. Um, love, and that love looks like practical acts of justice and mercy to the poor and powerless. As one person said, justice is what love looks like in public. And, if you're, and I know today, like especially last year, justice is a big, scary word. It's a big Bible word, though. Okay, so whatever you want to do with it, do with it, but you got it is a word in the Bible. So here's what I would say is go home, do a search of the word justice throughout the Old Testament, write out all the verses, and just come to your own conclusion on it. But there's passages like this, Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly before your God? It's a summary of what it means to follow Yahweh. So dig into it, but what does it look like to give justice and mercy to the poor and powerless? In this passage, we have three things I want to show you. The first one is, and I think this is a pretty low bar, first one is don't oppress people. Okay, And I know that seems like an awfully low bar, but look, look at verse 3. Behold, on the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Don't do that. Okay, That's the first bar of like, you know, justice and mercy. Verse 4. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and hit with a wicked fist. Okay, Maybe they're a little feisty from their fasting, but they, they're doing a religious deed and making everybody miserable. Okay, Verse 9. Um, if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, which is kind of judgmentalism, and speaking wickedness, right? And I think I want us all to just think about for a moment, am I somebody that oppresses all my workers? Okay? You might, you know, maybe you're an employer. You think about your employees. Maybe you're a boss in your business. You have people under you. Um, but guys, all of us are consumers. And so all of us have people being our workers at times. Things specifically like at a restaurant, in retail, and things like that. Um, I've been greatly discouraged by Christian leaders I greatly respected when I went out to dinner with them. I was just like, oh no. You know, like, this is not good. This shows something really not good. Guys, be gracious to them. Tip them massively. If you use the word God, church, or Christ during your conversation with the person with you, not with them, then you need to tip, like, I don't know, 40%, something really significant, okay? Like, because this is, you know, that's your tax. But guys, it's very easy to compartmentalize our faith so that what we do on Sunday morning doesn't connect to what we do on Monday at work, right? Really easy to compartmentalize. That's what these people did on Isaiah 58. One of the most shocking examples I could give you of that is 18th century Christians, some of them who, you know, are people that we would look up to and quote, that were faithful to the word, long Sunday sermons, right? Very faithful to the word, and then they had slaves on Monday, Okay? Like, that's insane, right? And I'm not talking about, like, people you haven't heard of. I'm talking about Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards had six farm and household slaves. Here's a guy laboring in the Word, does all these great things, you know, teaches, got great theology and everything, and then he's got six slaves. He owns people. He owns people. People that can't get away. People that have to do whatever he says. He owns people. Or George Whitfield. Right? This is a guy that like preached all over England, all over America, Great Awakening, all those things, right? Huge revival. Goes out in a field. He can preach for some reason, this is supernatural, to 30 or 40,000 people. And they're like, oh, his voice. I can tell the little differences in the tone. You're like, what? No mic, nothing, right? This is 1700s. 
Um, Benjamin Franklin was super interested in this. He, would, he wasn't interested in the gospel, but he was interested in figuring out how he could talk to all these people. But he would go out in a field and he'd preach to all these people, right? I read this big two-volume biography on him by Ian Murray, super inspiring. You're like, oh man, this is so great. And then I get to the part where he wrote a letter to the government and he wanted Georgia to expand its slavery. And here's this reason. So he was raising money for orphan houses and the problem was is that he couldn't get enough slaves to build it. And I'm like, seriously? Seriously? So here I am, like, I've invested a lot of time in this biography. You know, there's two gigantic volumes. So what do I do with the guy? What do I do with a guy that, like, I'm super inspired by him, and then I see this massive blind spot? Do I keep his books? Do I toss him aside? If he lived today, I'm tossing him aside. You know, if he was a writer today and he had slaves, and I'm reading him, and I'm like, oh, this is really good. And somebody says, well, you own slaves. I'd be like, I don't need that in my life. But we give him a pass because he lived a long time ago. And I don't know about that either, though. See, I'm conflicted. I'm not telling you what to think. I'm conflicted about this, okay? Because I'm like, well, he lived a long time ago. I, yeah, but this is easy. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, well, he lived in a time when there's slavery. But yeah, you're in the Bible all day. Like, it's easy to know whether slavery is right or wrong. It's easy to know whether you should own people or not. Like, that's simple. So it's like, I don't know what to do. But I'll tell you what it does. So I don't have an answer on that. You deal with it now. It's your problem. <laughs> now you know. Um, but I'll tell you that what it does with me is say, where are my blind spots? Because I'm not in the Bible like Jonathan Edwards. I'm not Jonathan Edwards. I could have blind spots that big about issues of justice and mercy. I could have issues about how I treat my employees, um, about how I deal with people at work. I could be oppressing the people in my own home. I could be oppressing you guys. I could have massive blind spots. And so I think we all need to pray, like, am I, Father, is any, do I have a blind spot? Am I oppressing somebody? Am I, am I, like, all holy in one area and just a nightmare for other people in some other area? And so we all need to face that. Second place, we need to speak up for those who are oppressed. Um, beyond just not oppressing people, I think that's kind of like your minimum bar, okay? We're going to come up one, which is we need to speak out and we need to work to end oppression. Look at verse 6. Is not this the fast that I've chosen? to loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the strap of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Break every yoke, right? Like we're called to actually be a part of things like we heard about this morning of breaking oppression. Um, I know you're like, man, I haven't heard this kind of thing. It's all throughout the Bible. The Proverbs 31.8, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Um, David had introduced these ministries. You know, we got Jeanette with Birth Choice in Temecula, and we got Elisa doing um, Sun City Gardens in Menifee, and then we got Holly in Cambodia. Um, and we didn't, like, uh, you know, look for these people online or something. You realize that, right? Like, these are all people in our body. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Church this size, like, there's a lot of activity going on here. So in a lot of ways, when I look at Isaiah 58, I think, oh, wow, God, you're really doing this stuff. But on the other hand, it's like, we need to look out for these blind spots, right? Um, I love birth choice. When we think of, like, giving voice to the voiceless or powerless, I mean, how great is that ministry for that, right? To give voice to the voiceless. It doesn't uh, get much more voiceless than the unborn, right? And, and I know, guys, in a group this size, and I think it was alluded to, but it is a fact that people in this room, just statistically, it's a fact that people in this room will have had abortions or consented to abortions. And by me bringing it up, it's one of those things where you go, like, I need to equip people. And on the other hand, I do not want to add to the guilt of somebody that has um, confessed sin, been forgiven of sin, 
they don't carry that sin anymore, and I don't want Sunday morning to go, like, stir it all up again. So I'm in a rough spot there, right? Because you want to equip and say, hey, here's the fact, but you also want to say you don't want to, you know, add guilt. But I know that anyone who has um, been through all that would want me to equip the body, right? You would want that. And so um, I just want to go through real quick how you can give voice to the voiceless um, and make a case that abortion, abortion is, is wrong. It, abortion is um, killing an innocent human being, okay? They're an innocent human being that deserves our protection. And you don't have to use the Bible to do this, okay? I think a lot of times people like pull a pastor from the Old Testament or something and go, this is it. And I think that's helpful, but I think you also need to be able to just like say it just in a logical way without even the Bible, which is the, the unborn is a human being, an innocent human being, okay? That's actually just a logical statement. That's not even, the, I, is the, the unborn is human. How would we know that? You take a DNA sample, right? Take a cell, run the DNA, tell the lab, don't tell them where you got it, say, what is this? It's human, right? Um, the, the unborn is a human being distinct from the mother. How can we know that? Well, same thing. We take a sample. It's not a clump of cells. It's part of the woman's body. It's none of that, right? Take a little sample, send it to the lab, go, and send her DNA. Is this a clump of her cells? No, it's not. It's related to her. You know, this is, this is half the genetics are from her. So we know it's a human being distinct, human being from the mother, and we know by definition that the unborn's innocent, right? Innocent human being. Innocent human beings deserve our protection. Um, some of the main reasons people go, well, yeah, okay, but it's different. It's different than us. This unborn is different than us. The, th- the four main ways that they give um, to, to argue that is, um, can be an, uh, summarized by an acronym SLED, S-L-E-D. Write that down, SLED. And I think we all have a slide here in a sec. SLED. And SLED stands for S is size. L is level of development. You could do it on a napkin, um, which is helpful. You want an argument, you could do it on a napkin, right? Size, level of development. I know you're seeing the irony in that. Um, environment, and then degree of dependency. None of these change whether the unborn is less human than you, okay? Because, like, for example, we don't, we don't say, like, size determines whether a person's more valuable or less valuable. Like, smaller people are not less valuable than bigger people, right? Our culture might even value smaller people. Um, level of development, you know? Um, the unborn is at an earlier uh, level of development. We know what the unborn's becoming, though, right? I mean, it's a chain. We know where it goes. It doesn't like, da-da-da, giraffe, you know? Like, something like that, right? This is human, okay? Same level of development. It's, it's a level of development thing. If we go from this stage to that stage, you're going you're gonna to go through the levels, and then you'll be you, okay? Um, so level of development doesn't matter. Like, for example, we don't value um, a 20-year-old more than a 20-month-old, right? We don't value 20-year-olds. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I do. <laughs> but I'd say our culture doesn't. Our culture just disdains them, poor people. Um, environment, okay? Um, because the unborn is in a uterus, they're not human like I'm human. That's not logical, right? We don't judge whether someone's human, more human or less human, based on their location. I mean, one of the worst things that we could talk about this is, you know, par- partial birth abortion, because the whole thing is, like, this is actually a viable human being, but we'll make sure they don't get out all the way, kill them before they come out, because when they're, when they're out, they're, they're safe, but they're in. You know, you see, you see the illogic of this, right? Environment doesn't matter. And then degree of dependency. It's like, well, you know, this two-month-long gestation um, unborn person uh, couldn't survive outside the womb. But see, that doesn't work either because we, there are people that need insulin to survive. There are people that need dialysis to survive. 
There are people that need all kinds of medications to survive. And we don't say they're less human, right? So all these four things turn out to be not helpful. So you make the case, um, human, distinct from the mother, innocent, and then you go, hey, and these four things don't matter. If these are where your hang-ups are, these actually do not make them uh, less human than you. So, um, and birth choice gives a voice to the voiceless, which is awesome. Um, another great example is uh, in Cambodia, you know, in the Cambodian context, those girls have no power and they have no voice, right? It's common in that culture that a family will sell their daughter. If they get to a point where, you know, they're financially in bad shape or whatever, they will sell their daughter into the sex trade. I mean, that's just a thing. That's normal. It happens all the time. So they don't have a voice. It's a massive injustice, Right? Um, girls' House of Refuge, I love, they take, they, they take them in, they share Christ with them, uh, disciple them, uh, counsel them, send them to school, give them job training, give them a voice, right? And we were just talking about a girl that's actually going to court to face um, somebody that raped her. And uh, the Girls' House of Refuge helping her to actually go to court and have the courage to pray for her and get her to do that. It's hard for her to even go there and have her voice, but her voice is going to be heard. It's awesome, you know? It's so awesome. We need, like, like a thousand girls' house refuge in that one city, right? At least, and there's a breaking of oppression there, physical and spiritual oppression. There's a huge uh, spiritual oppression being broken there. Um, third thing would be to give generously. Look at verse seven: Is not the fast I have chosen to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and hide and not hide yourself from your own flesh? I mean, birth choice is great in that too because I think the caricature is like that. That ministries like that just tell people they're wrong, and they don't. Right? They provide all kinds of help for women who have made the decision um, to, to maintain the pregnancy and give them you know, uh, food and clothing and support and things like that. And guys, I want us to be like that as a church. Because I think ahead and I think, you know, we've got a lot of young kids in our church and stuff like that. I want to be the kind of church, guys, that if one of our daughters gets pregnant out of wedlock, that, they would, that we would rush to support them and this would be the best possible place for them to be. That is not always true of churches, okay? I don't know if you know that. But uh, we want to be the kind of church that if one of our daughters is in kind of crisis pregnancy situation, she doesn't feel like she's got to run away somewhere, but we would gather around here, we'd support her, we'd take care of her, right? Amen? Hope you'll own that with me? Okay. Um, Girls' House of Refuge is great in this area, too. They literally bring them into a home. It is a house of refuge. They're like, bring them, and she lives in that one of those houses, right? You bring them into your house. Um, guys, James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Because you might be like, there's this whole debate about justice and all these things amongst Christians and everything. Guys, pure and undefiled religion. And that's, by the way, when you take part in this stuff, where you feel like, like this is just, like, just innately good. It's because it's pure and undefiled religion. Right? Notice in verse 7 that we're not just called to pour out our funds, but look at verse uh, 10, sorry. Look at verse 10. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the needy. Pour yourself out. And that's what I love about um, uh, Sun City Gardens ministry with Elisa, is that doesn't require any money. It, it doesn't require any real transportation. It's right here in Menifee. Um, but all it requires is you, right? It's a pouring yourself out to people. It, it's such a cool thing. You guys should really just come and check it out because it, it's wonderful. And you just shadow Elisa. She'll take care of everything. You just be like the co-pilot, you know? Um, just cruising along. Um, but guys, pure and undefiled religion. These are almost all widows. You think like, well, in our culture, like, where do you find a widow to serve? 
whole bunch of widows to serve. Lisa's laughing. Like, they're all widows there, right? Pure and undefiled religion. And it's so cool. I mean, Lisa, the connection that she has with them, um, I would just ask, join once or twice. Check it out. It, you might say, well, I have kids and I don't have time. Bring them. It's a perfect ministry to do as a family. That's actually, they love that, right? It's a ministry you could do in an hour or so and pour yourself out for the, to satisfy the desire of the afflicted. That's the fast God has chosen. Fast your time. You know, I don't want to get into it again with you guys, and you don't want to hear it again. I sound like an old man yelling at kids on my lawn. But um, social media, most people spend 135 minutes a day on social media. Fast it that day. You, boom, done. You've got plenty of time to go, right? Awesome. Hey, guys, this is what our people have done when they're at their best, right? All throughout church history. Um, in the 18th century, I already picked on Christians in the 18th century, but in the 18th century, slavery in, in, British, uh, in the British Empire was brought down largely by a group of Christian friends. They were called the Clapham Sect. Some people called them the Clapham Saints, and they were making fun of them. And they were a diverse band of Christian friends in England. They were politicians and pastors, authors. They were like businessmen, evangelists. There was a banker. There was a brewer. You need a brewer when you're doing that kind of work. <laughs> and they didn't do this for a living, trying to bring down slavery. It wasn't like they started a nonprofit and they were all on payroll or anything like that. They fasted their time and money to do this. And they got together, this band of Christian friends, and they plotted together to bring it down. And I got a picture of a few of them. Um, William Wilberforce, um, Hannah Moore, uh, Henry Thornton, and they all had like gray hair, you know? Uh, I don't know if it's real, but, um, but William Wilberforce, he was a, a politician, and so he worked tirelessly for a really long time to, to, to bring down slavery. Thornton, this dude was just rich and knew a lot of people, so he'd have big parties, and then he'd bring all his friends in, and they'd turn the conversation to slavery. Fun, huh? So they come in, they're having a good time, and they're like, okay, you talk to that one. Now, Hannah Moore, she was a poet. She was also like kind of a and she would start schools in rural areas and stuff like that. But she was a really tough girl. And she, she was a poet and, and socialite and stuff. She'd come to these parties and, and they'd be like, oh, I love your poetry and stuff. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's great. You know, let's talk about something I'm into, you know. And she would get into it. With, and they, they turned the opinion, right, so that Wilberforce had the power to do it. Uh, Karen Pryor, who wrote a book on Hannah Moore that's awesome, she said this, although they operated as one body, this Clapham sect, um, the genius of the group lay in there capitalizing on the particular gifts of each member. They assigned tasks based on each person's gifts and skills in order to accomplish their common cause. Thornton uh, had wealth and connections. Wilberforce was blessed with eloquence. Moore had the power of wit and pen. And they plotted to bring down English slavery. And they did. Isn't that awesome? They fasted their time and money. This is something they did with their fasting. That's the fast God cho chooses. What kind of evil do you think there is in our society that God's calling us to abolish today? And how could one of you maybe enlist people in this church and use the gifts like these guys did to do that? And guys, the church is the perfect kind of incubator of this kind of thing. I mean, if you look at Hebrews, that's what we're called to do when we get together. It says in Hebrews, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting the meeting together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Stirring one another up to love and good works. Isn't that awesome? The church is like that pre-organized uh, organism that's perfect for this kind of thing, right? Because we're already organized. You think about the, the black church in the 60s with the civil rights movement. There was already a network of people to do this. You guys are a network of people. I don't know what that injustice is, and I would say don't wait for me. Okay, we all have different gifts. I'm called to unpack Isaiah 58. 
You're called probably to organize something that's very Isaiah 58. But, but do it. You know, stir, get other people stirred up. Um, start with what we already have. When you guys go into the foyer, you can talk to Holly or Elisa or Jeanette about their ministries and get involved with something there. But then I'd say, don't stop there. I mean, some of you guys should be dreaming and starting other things. You know, some of you guys, that is your calling. Uh, the church where I was talking to a friend, um, I think it was last week, we were talking about preaching, and we are talking about some churches can be preaching stations. Okay? It's not what we're going for. That's the theater model, right? Preaching station, which is, I just come for the sermon, I come, I leave, right? That's not what it's for. I was listening to Piper the other day, and he was saying, if all, he was talking about preaching, the importance of preaching, and obviously Piper is not underestimating preaching, and he says this, he said, um, if all you have is preaching, you don't have the church. The, the preaching is really to stir up others and use their gifts to actually do the work of ministry. That's what this is about. And so if some of you guys have been really bothered by some sort of injustice in our community, in our state, in the world, you, that's a calling. Stir other people up to do it, and there will be funds. You go, oh, I don't know there would be money for that. There's always money for that, right? If God's calling you to do that, you stir up other people, people will get behind it. I mean, somebody started birth choice, right? Somebody started, I mean, at least to just start with she starts, requires no money unless you buy those little audio Bible things. Um, and then Holly, she just, like, went to Cambodia, on her own and decided to start something, rented a house, you know? I mean, it's crazy, but people gathered around her and people invested in it, and that's what happens. This is how we as Christians, guys, live surprising, questionable lives. First Peter talks about always being ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you. That implies that they have questions. That implies that you were questionable, right? That you had some surprising thing about your life. That's how we do this. And then our answer is, say, why do you do this? We say, it's Christ living in me, right? That's our answer. It's Christ living in me, which is what these promises are about. And I'm going to go through them really fast, but these promises, Isaiah 58 isn't just a beating, right? There's these beautiful promises, and these promises that I'm going to read to you are all promises for believers who will live their lives as a conduit, not a cul-de-sac. We all know what that is. Conduit's like a pipeline, right? A pipeline for the life of Christ. Um, the other option is we can kind of live as cul-de-sacs. Everybody's like, oh, I like cul-de-sacs. I do too. But you don't want to be a cul-de-sac because cul-de-sac doesn't go anywhere, right? And so Christ, it turns out, is pouring his life through conduits. If you're a cul-de-sac, there's no more to put in, right? Because you're a cul-de-sac. And we're called to live as conduits. You're united with Christ such the Holy Spirit is now able to use you as a conduit for Christ's life to flow through. And when we focus on the needs of other people, we'll see these amazing things happen. Take a look at them. I'm going to show you. You're going to love these. Um, You're going to have more freedom from sin. Look at verse 8. He says, if you do this, look at the word then, then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily, and your righteousness shall shall be before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Guys, freedom from sin isn't found in piling on more and more self-focus. It's often found on focusing on pouring our lives out for others. It's, it's putting off and putting on. It's putting on love. And the more that we pour ourselves out for others, we're going to find it's easier to fight sin, actually, it turns out. Um, verse 9, here's another promise. If we'll live as conduits, not cul-de-sacs. Rich your prayer life. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. Doesn't that sound good? You shall cry, and he'll say, here I am. Right? One of the most amazing prayer lives I've ever heard of in church history is a guy named George Mueller. And you know what he did? He ran orphan homes, tons of them. And he was constantly praying for like milk and stuff. And he saw God's answers like crazy. It says we pour ourselves out. We'll see more joy. Look at verse 4. Then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will be as noonday. 
Jesus has told us where the blessing is. More blessed to give than receive. And as we pour ourselves out, we have joy in that. Or guidance. A lot of us want guidance. Yeah, Lord, direct my life. I need to know. I need an answer. I need to know what to do. Look at verse 11. And the Lord will continually guide you. You know, not focusing on our own fulfillment, but plotting how to serve others. He'll supply all kinds of guidance. And you guys have seen that. A refreshment. Look at verse 11. I love this. And satisfy your desire in scorched places. Like most of the year we live in a scorched place. And make your bones strong, and you shall be like a well-watered garden, like springs of water whose water do not fail. Yesterday we had the men's hike. It was really cool. Um, so like 30-plus guys went. A bunch of guys went that don't even normally go to church. We had tons of kids, probably like t- at least 10, 12 kids. And what was cool about this time is there was a ton of rain, and so there was actually there was a stream running through the desert. And people that had never been there, I always have to tell them, like, this isn't the way it normally is. You know, like, this is a desert, it's dry. But there was water running through it. And what God's promising here is that as we'll pour ourselves out to others, be a conduit, not a cul-de-sac, that we will feel those streams of living water, Christ's life actually coming through us. It comes by actually pouring ourselves out. Proverbs eleven twenty five says, The one who waters will himself be watered. You want to be watered? We need to water others. Um, we don't sit around and go like, I feel so dry. My Christian life's so dry. You know, like, well, here's how we get watered, right? Um, God says that if we, if we do this, that he will be glorified by his people again. Look at verse 12. This is kind of artsy, but check this out. Verse 12. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of the streets to dwell in. In the context, he's talking about Jerusalem, right? This city on a hill, right? That's to be the beacon of God to, to the world, right? What is it today? It's the church, right? Jesus said we're a city on a hill, a light, a lit city on a hill that can't be hidden. Do you want that? You know, we all, like, complain about the church, and the church doesn't do that, and church doesn't do this. And I want to warn you guys about that, by the way. Um, Bonhoeffer, in his book, uh, Life Together, he said that you got to be real careful you don't become the accuser of the brethren. That job's taken. Right? And I don't think we want to help him. Right? So, but we complain a lot about the church and stuff. Do we want to see the church be a city set on a hill? This is how it happens. I mean, this list of people, if you brought any non-Christian in here and they heard this kind of stuff, maybe, you know, the abortion thing would run the wrong way, but, but um, just the compassion things that are occurring here, they'd be all like, oh, that's what I thought the church should do. Well, the church does it. <laughs> the church does it, right? It's so good. When people hear about Holly's ministry, people are like, oh, well, that's what the church should be doing. They don't have a sense that the church does do that. But God's um, people, um, once again, being a glory for God. Um, and, and sometimes we complain, guys. My, my, my Christian life is so dry and so joyless and unspiritual. When you have those complaints, just remember, those are the exact complaints in this passage. My life is dry, it's joyless, it's so unsupernatural. Where is God? Okay? Like, those complaints are the complaints in here. And he, the diagnosis he gives is really clear. You're, you're living in self-focused religion. And then he gives a very clear, so that's the diagnosis, and then he gives a very clear treatment, which is pour your life out for the justice and mercy for the poor and powerless so that Christ's life will flow through you as a, as a conduit and not like as a stagnant cul-de-sac. No one wants to be that, right? And then God gets the glory and we get the joy. It's a good deal, right? God gets the glory and we get the joy. And I want to real quick just talk about one last thing, which is there are hindrances to this, aren't there? You have resistance still. Even after I gave you those promises, you probably have some resistance. And the two areas you will have resistance in, if you're normal, is you will have one resistance in the area of 
um, in some areas when we talk about poor and oppressed and stuff, you'll say, that's their problem, okay? Um, especially in America, you know, like, if they lived like me, they wouldn't have the problems they have, they would have, their life would go well. Which was a very ancient, common thing to say, read the book of Job, right? Like, if you live right, God will bless you, right? Um, and Americans do this too, but without God, we say, if you live right, the free market will bless you, right? Isn't that what we say, right? We say we do something different. But guys, um, and then the other thing that we're going to have is, and it is a feeling of scarcity. Did you guys have it? I don't have time or money for this, right? That's what we feel right away. We have a, so there's superiority and then there's a scarcity problem. The, the scarcity problem is, is interesting because we're the richest people who have ever lived, and yet we feel more poor in time and money than ever, which is not actually true. Our, we have way more free time than any human beings that have ever lived. We live way better than any kings in ancient times, actually. And so we have these two hindrances. And so it, it turns out to really do this, we need to both be humbled on the one hand, but also be shown how much we have to share on the other hand. You know, to be really generous, we need to both see our poverty and our riches. And the gospel does both. Second Corinthians 8, 9, I'll end on this, is, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by your poverty he might become rich. The gospel shows us that we're both poor and rich at the same time. It shows us that we're spiritually poor, right? That we're destitute before God. And if you're not sure about that, go back to Matthew 25 about the final judgment and meditate on it for about three minutes, <laughs> okay? And you will start to sense your spiritual poverty. Like, how will I stand before God in his perfect assessment of my actions, my words, and my thoughts? It's not going to happen, right? We're spiritually poor, right? We're broke. And yet Jesus became poor for us. In the gospel, it shows us to what great lengths God has gone, gone to identify with the poor and powerless. Jesus was born poor, right? He was, he was born, he was placed in a manger in a stable. His parents offered the offering of poor parents at the temple. Um, he was a carpenter, which doesn't mean he like, was like a high-end you know, carpenter. It means laborer. He was a laborer. Um, he had nowhere to lay his head. He was a homeless guy. So he'd go around preaching. He says, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. He, like, crashed at people's houses. And sometimes he'd, like, sleep in the tree areas, you know, like up in the olive orchards. That's what he did the Passover week, right? So this is a guy who became poor. On Palm Sunday, he rides in on a borrowed donkey. Um, for Last Supper, he rent, he's in a borrowed room. <coughs> he got the unjust treatment that the poor can usually expect in his trial. And then he got the death penalty of the poor by crucifixion. And then he was laid in a borrowed tomb. This is poor, right? But the poverty that the gospel is about is not physical, but spiritual. He took on all your spiritual poverty on the cross. He stood before God, and he took the weight of the guilt that you should have experienced before God, his perfect assessment of all of your actions and words and thoughts. That sense of guilt and shame and that debt of sin was placed on Jesus on the cross, and he eliminated it, he bore it, and we carry it no more. Isn't that amazing? So you're poor, but you've also been made rich, right? Now you have all the riches, and if you look through Isaiah 58, these are all blood-bought riches. You know, people say, what is grace? And they use it as an acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense, and that's what you have here in Isaiah 58, is God's riches at Christ's expense that he gives us all of his riches. And so it takes away our two hindrances of wanting to really pour ourselves out. It says on the one hand, you're not superior, you're actually poor. And on the other hand, you're rich in Christ and you have so much to give. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this vision of Isaiah 58. We, we appreciate both the rebuke, which we need. We need the reminder. We need the rebuke. We need 
um, any kind of self-focused, self-absorbed religion exposed. We need our injustice exposed, Lord. We just pray that we would just examine our lives, as uh, Psalm 139 says, and show us any area that we are oppressive to our family, maybe to a spouse, to our kids. We're oppressive to friends. We're oppressive to um, people who work for us or with us. Lord, we pray that we would be people that would, like you have called us to, undo every binding yoke, every weight. And we pray, Lord, too, for those who are in this room that don't know you, Lord, we pray that you would unbind that yoke. Lord, that there is not just a physical oppression, but there's a spiritual oppression that is everywhere in our world. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be people who bring the gospel to, so that you, your spirit, would loosen their bonds. Because your son's yoke is easy and his burden is light. And I pray for anybody that doesn't know him here, Lord, that maybe in some way they'd be attracted to, to you and your heart for the poor and that they would see themselves as poor and know that you love them and that they would turn from their sin and trust in you. You are so good. There is no reason to run from a God like you. You're so ready to forgive. You're so ready to put the merits of your son on anyone who asks. Lord, we pray that nobody would leave this room still carrying the weight of their sin, but that they would leave it here as they trust in Christ. And Father, as we take communion, we pray that you would um, be blessed by this, Lord. We pray that we would be a deep remembrance of your son who came physically poor and then was made ultimately spiritually poor on the cross for us. That as he hung there, he endured the full horror that we would have had to endure of seeing your accurate assessment of our lives on the final day and knowing that it's true and knowing that we should have known all along. We pray, Lord, that we just thank you that he took that. We bear that no more. We don't have to face that. And we pray, Lord, too, that as we take communion, that you'd feed us in such a way that we could pour ourselves out to others this week. Lord, you desire to make us new. I mean, Isaiah 58 says that so clearly. You desire to make us new. You don't just point out our sin. You say, turn to me and I'll give you all these things. And they're all things we want. Lord, please do your whole will in our lives. We are done running our own lives. We're done trying to be, quote unquote, good people without you. Lord, we are ready to be your conduits of your blessing, of your son's holy life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.